Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Well, Shabbat Shalom. I am sitting here with my uh, holy and wise mother-in-law, Carol Rose, uh, who, in addition to producing one of the greatest human beings to ever grace the earth, uh, my wife, Adira, uh, she is a writer and a scholar and a poet uh, and an educator uh, and uh, has now for many years been my teacher. And uh, I uh, invited her uh, to join us uh, this Shabbat to talk a little bit about uh, the Torah portion. Uh, And the Parsha this week is uh, Parshat Vayishlach. Uh, It uh, begins with the um, reunification of uh, Jacob and uh, his brother Esav um, after a a long period of, um, of, of alienation. Uh, an enmity between the two. Uh, and uh, and then uh, after that uh, encounter, uh, the scene really radically shifts to one of the most uh, disturbing stories in, in all of the Torah. Um, it's in Genesis chapter 34, uh, and it's a story of uh, the daughter of Leah and Jacob named Dina, uh, who uh, in the land in which uh, Jacob and his family come to settle, uh, the land of Shechem, uh, he, uh, Dina goes out, uh, that's the, where, where the passage begins in chapter 34, uh, that uh, Dina, the daughter of Leah, went out uh, to visit uh, the daughters of the land, it says, Shechem, son of Hamor, the, the Chivite, chief of the country, saw her and took her and lay with her by force. Um, the Hebrew there, took her, Aneha, uh, and, and laid down with her or, or slept with her uh, and, and harmed her. Um, uh, and then the, the, the plot thickens, I suppose, uh, by saying, uh, he, his uh, soul was uh, bound up or clung to Dina. Uh, and uh, he loved the, the maiden and he spoke to the maiden tenderly. And so Shrem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as a wife. Uh, and the narrative continues with Hamor then going to Jacob uh, and uh, making a proposition to him uh, that uh, Dina be given to uh, his son Shechem as, as a wife. Uh, and uh, further, I think, tries to sweeten the deal by saying, you know, we'll, we'll kind of unite all of our tribes in this land and all of your daughters will marry our sons and all of our sons will marry your daughters and we'll be one big happy family. Uh, won't it all be nice? Uh, and uh, Dina's brothers uh, hear of the what had transpired in these uh, deliberations uh, and are furious about what had happened um, and uh, say to Hamor that, um, that you know, and, and to Shrem, we're not going to let uh, Dina marry uh, Shrem and we're not going to let, let our daughters marry your sons um, because they are uncircumcised and, uh, and that is um, abhorrent to us. Uh, and so uh, uh, Hamor and Shrem gather all of the men of the city and say, here's the deal. Um, we want to intermarry with this clan, uh, but they need us all to be circumcised. So they all on the spot circumcise themselves. Uh, and, uh, and then on the third day following the circumcision, when all of the uh, men are 
uh, nursing their wounds and, and at their most vulnerable, uh, the brothers Shimon and Levi come to the town and slaughter everyone uh, and take all of the women and children uh, uh, captive uh, and, and despoil the entire town. Uh, and then Shabbat Shalom. Uh, so it's a, it's a really challenging, disturbing story. And I thought, um, who better to help make uh, heads or tails of this uh, uncomfortable narrative uh, than uh, my dear mother-in-law, Carol Rose. So uh, first of all, Ima Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Can you hear me? Can hear you loud and clear. It's so good okay. to have you. So uh, I'm wondering, um, how are you making sense of this story this year? Yeah, it's um, it's a terrible story and it's uh, difficult to make sense of. And, and I guess all I can do this year is raise more questions. That's the best way I can uh, deal with the story. Because even in your telling, which I know is thoughtful and considerate of the characters in the story, Dina is almost obliterated, right? It becomes right. the story of Shem, it becomes the story of Amor, it becomes the story of Yaakov, it becomes the story of her brothers, it becomes that story. So where in the world is she in the stories? It is kind of the first question that I always ask about women in the story, but Dina probably more profoundly. Um, so this year I, I had written uh, for Adira, 35 years ago, or probably more, 36 years ago, a set of cards um, in anticipation of her arrival, uh, illustrations and kind of poetic midrash for her to begin to know the women in text. And of course, I hope my sons and son-in-laws would also enjoy that, um, but it was really for her. And, uh, and at the time, this is a long time ago, uh, this is what I was thinking about, Dina, and it came to mind again, because I think what came to mind is the kind of freshness of a young woman maturation, the kind of, if you've lived inside a young woman's body, the excitement of being able to move freely and delight in your own physicality and experience your own sexuality, if it was, you know, just as a young teenage woman. So uh, that's what I wrote about. And I'm gonna read that just briefly. Barefoot, you come from tent breast folds drawn by bouquets of warm winds, caressing your legs, raising your skirts, urging flowers to spill their secret fragrances. Your movement is open, vulnerable, light, touching all things to life with your step until lust rage is unbalanced and you fall, crying the cry that echoes eternally in our hearts. And she became, kind of the card of vulnerability, leaving her tent um, and going out. And the rabbis make a, a great deal out of her going out. So one of the things that I thought about is, I wanted to count how many times Dina's name because often women aren't named in the text. And when you told the story, we heard about her once. She's named by name six times. She's named as the daughter of Leah one time. She's named as the daughter of Jacob four times and as the sister of her brothers four times. So she's in that text all the time. And yet when the story is told, what are we missing? Um, we're missing the life of a young woman who went out and totally trusted her environment. But more than that, I think my cop for this year or my insight for this year is that she comes from a family that journeyed out. Her grandfather, her father, her uncles, these were men who 
took journeys and discovered themselves and discovered their God, in fact, discovered their spirituality, their identity. They wrestled with angels along the way. Wouldn't she be curious about stepping out? And the other thing that I noticed is that some rabbis, when they do talk about Dina as the daughter of Leah, they point out that Leah stepped out, that Leah was someone who took destiny in her hands, like her aunt, Rachel, took destiny in her own hands. These were women who knew how to uh, acquire what they needed in the moment. And I think Dina was just curious, alive, full of um, spunk. And um, more than that, really, she came from a tradition, I think, that went out. They were the crosserovers, the Avrim. They were people who left what was known for the unknown. And so that's what came to mind for me this year. Um, and, and also that Leah was the person who went out and you know got her husband to be with her in a transactional manner by trading off um, the mandrakes for a night with uh, Yaakov. Um, so, these are people who knew how to negotiate and work things out. And, you know, maybe uh, Dina had a little bit of that heart in her too, that kind of uh, curiosity and willingness to explore and be open. And um, maybe they had a reputation in that area for being negotiators. So, you know, maybe, maybe Hamor, they knew that they were, there were ways in which you could negotiate with this group of people. Um, this sheikh that I, I see Yaakov as this kind of equal in status to Hamor in a smaller way, but had a great deal of prestige, wealth, status in his clan. And this young entitled son of Hamor, they call him a prince in the text, right. um, feels that he's entitled to to whatever is around and what way. And remember, women were collateral. They were just like sheep. They were available for negotiation for transactional purposes. So um, in the context of their history, bargaining and trading would not be unusual. Maybe Hamor knew about that. Maybe Shrem knew about that. I, I think it's ridiculous to keep redeeming him, keep redeeming this entitled young mm. prince by saying that he fell madly in love with her. And, you know, it's a nice tale. It's, it's an apologetic, um, but we still don't know Dina any better. Um, we don't know what she felt. We don't know what, what this trauma brought up for her, brought out for her. We never hear from her again. You know, we don't really hear from her. So there's a big question mark, but I always see the question mark as an opportunity for new and creative um, midrash. So, wow. I mean, there's uh, uh, there's there's so much there, you know. And I um, I also, you know, in, in as much as the story itself is unsettling. Um, to read the classical rabbinic commentaries on it is is in some ways 
you know, even more unsettling. You know, um, you know, Rashi points out, right, ki'ima uh, kibita, uh, right, like, like, you know, like daughter, like mother, right. All these, all these women stepping out, you know, and um, and, and there, there is this sense among some of the commentators, not all of them, sense among some of the commentators that, you know, that the that the fact of her, uh, you know, stepping out, her the fact of her going out and leaving, you know. Um, was you know it's like uh, uh, like the sort of you know classic contemporary refrain of you know what what she was wearing she was asking for it you know that sort of thing um, and and you're right you know study I, I don't think I had really noted that until looking at it this year that um, that Dina the story starts with Dina as the protagonist of her of her narrative and then you never hear from her again you don't hear one word uttered from her um, and. She's relegated to the sidelines of her own story by, you know, by the, by this act of, of of sexual violence, by the violence of her brothers, by the uh, manipulations of of the of the men around her. Um, and but it's but it's what I was intrigued most about um, in what you shared is that you um, you cast Dina as the um, as the as the symbol of, of vulnerability and. And to me, um, you know, the 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 um, yitzia, the the like going out, strikes me as you know courageous in a way, right? She she is she's going to explore, right? Uh, um, she sees that she is from a family of people who like you know step out of their comfort zones, and she wants to go and 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 um, experience what that's like. And I suppose that there's a certain courage in um, in, in making yourself vulnerable like that. Right. Um, but, um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit about why vulnerability. Good point. I think, I think maybe I had another thought. I mean, that's a really good point. I, I think that there is great courage, but it's that kind of adolescent courage, you know, in that, um, you know, that, infallibility, nothing will happen to me after all, you know, my uncles went out, my dad went out, my mom, I could, I, you know, there's that kind of adolescent um, courage, I think. But I was thinking of it more in a spiritual sense of the nar or the novice um, who steps into something, the unknown, um, very receptive and open and trusting um, so I think all spiritual journeys start out that way. The tarot cards, for instance, have um, the knave, you know, mm -hmm. the fool, even in some cultures, the fool, that innocent, um, optimistic, um, daring, that kind of, and um, that's really what I had in mind, that kind of openness that we can call courage or we can say is, um, uh, you know, the you you'll you'll sustain that kind of courage until your first fall. Um, so yeah, is I mean, is the is the moral of the story about um, about how to you know about the about what the experience of of living um, as an as an underprivileged uh, category of person in a world where there is so much. Uh, power and privilege around you like right like I see that in this right like she because you know like my father was a was a person who stepped out my my grandfather 
um, uh, I, I come from a family of of, of explorers and, uh, and and movers, right? I, like, and so her maybe naivete, but her her feeling that like I should be able to go out into this world too, and then the world around her says, "No, you can't." Um, Story I think every woman encounters. I should be able to. Uh, and yet I didn't teach my boys how to listen for every footstep as I taught Adira. And I didn't teach my boys to carry their car keys in their hand in case they have to, you know. So I think that's the story. The story is that women still are, ought to be able to. And, um, and the world just isn't, hasn't made that actually possible. Uh, and if our culture has improved at all, think about places like India, where this is still very much an alive story, you know, a very alive story. So what's the takeaway? That's to raise more conscious individuals to be aware that this is still a story. Um, and, you know, you can think about the benefits of you know, of being a privileged man. Right. Or you can think about Lilo going out for a walk someday. Right, right. So I, I read the story, you know, um, and, you know, in addition to being, you know, horrified, um, it, 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 um, it, it frightens me um, as, uh, you know, uh, as what her experience is still in, 2020 um, going to be like, and I, I wonder, you know, is there a moral to this story? Like, is this a story that we're given to, um, uh, you know, Limoduk Bel Schar, like learn it and you'll receive a reward? Is it is the point of the story like for us to be outraged by it, um, or is there something else going on here that that we're given this story to to reflect on and to learn something? What are we supposed to learn from this? Oh, I think I think we should be outraged. I think, um, and and we shouldn't sidestep. I think, I think we have to catch ourselves in reading this story and and think of, about not sidestepping from this horror, facing it and acknowledging it, and feeling responsible in some way for the society that Lila will walk around in. I mean, all the children, but you know, in this case, because we're talking about Dina, I think. What we learn is, is, you know, to be more aware of the fact that this is real. It's a problem and you can't talk about the side stories or the other negotiations that happen in life. Um, you know, I, I've seen some scholars who've written about the story of Dina and I can't breathe, you know, for instance, mm. or what are the vulnerable places that still have to be attended to? What can we, as conscious, spiritual, mature adults do to provide safety for those vulnerable individuals? I think that's the question, the, the lesson, I don't know, it comes in many forms, but certainly not to sidestep it, not to make excuses for it, you know. Right, I, I, you know, I, I um, you know, as you were, 
sharing that, um, you know, that, that you didn't have to teach your sons what you had to teach Adira, right? What, what you know, and, and still probably today, we're not going to have to teach Shemaya Nikiva what we have to teach Lila um, about how to navigate the world as, as, as a young woman and, and ultimately as a, as, as a woman. Um, and I, you know, we, we spent a lot of time this summer, especially in, in, you know, in the language of I Can't Breathe, talking about, you know, how folks that look like me, folks that look like us, um, like I never had a conversation with my parents about um, about what to do when you encounter a police officer, um, other than other than you know be polite and respectful, and they're there to help, you know, um, or they're there at least to do their job and and you know make sure that no one's breaking the law, um, and only kind of eventually later in my life coming to the realization that that was not everybody's experience um, with with law enforcement. Um, and, you know, and, and, and there's also a, a piece in the story that, that, that really struck me that when Shimon and Levi come to the town, um, they don't just kill Shrem for the crime that he committed against their sister or his father for, you know, um, trying to, uh, I don't know, compound the, the, the horror. Um, they hey kill- yeah, they, I mean, they kill every single person, every single man in, in the town, you know, as, as if to say that all of those people are responsible for what Shrem did or what Shrem was allowed to do. Um, and, and there's a, there's a you know, that, that, that's very, um, uh, that, that, refle- that, that tracks to, um, the, the, I think, the, the Torah's like general sense of justice, right? That, you know, what Heschel said, that in a society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. Like everybody in the town is, uh, is responsible for having um, abided a culture in which this entitled uh, uh, jerk is able to uh, feels like he's able to do what he wants, um, and so they all you know deserve in some way to be implicated in the crime. Um, but I, I'm not so sure. Like I don't think yeah, that Shimon and Levi are the so- hero. I'm not sure that Shimon and Levi are the heroes of the story either. I'm not sure that they're the, the heroes of the story, and and you know, and again, commentaries bend over backwards to say, well, they were her real brothers and, you know, they, they were the biological brothers and therefore they had every right to protect her honor. It had nothing to do with her honor. It really had a lot to do with Jacob's honor, their or own. They, honor, or their own. Yeah. Their right. Their own honor. And, and I think I'm under current in the story for me is the fact that, um, this trading of women was very acceptable, you know. Um, we'll marry you, you'll marry our daughters, we'll take your daughters, you'll take our daughters. This was a way of establishing uh, Kinyan. You know, you were making a, creating, make a deal, let's make a deal. And, and women were just at the center of this deal. In fact, um, taking, uh, the, taking of the daughters, the transactional thing happens three times in the story. If you know something happens three times, it's worth noting. One person mm-hmm. says it, then another person says it, another person says it. So Hamor says it, Yaakov says it, brothers say it. They, and you can count them because I sat and underlined it today before mm-hmm. speaking, <laughs> I mean, you know, in preparation for this. Um, so that transactional, that women are part of um, how you cut a deal to increase your power, you know, is something we really need to pay attention to in in our society and the vulnerable in ways in which they become 
collateral for our own progress. And I, I think that's not a new story. It's an old story, but if we don't tell it for what it is over and over again, we've seen over the last few years, what can happen. Right, and, and you know, it, it, it feels to me as you're, um, as, as we're talking about this, that, um, you know, that what, what's, what's at stake, what, you know, the stakes in the story as it's told, right, are, you know, um, like uh, lust and greed on on uh, on Shrem and Hamor's part. Pow power is very much at play in the story. Pride um, is very much at play in the story, right? And revenge. and and what's revenge? And what's what's not at play in the story at all is like what is Dina's experience? How does she feel? How do we take it right? Right. Where, Not where once do the brothers say, like, let's go check in on her and like see how she's doing after all of this. And not once does the text follow up on that. Right. You know, there's no trauma of Dina. There's no follow-up. There's no restoration of Dina. There's no marriage of Dina. There's only a hiding, as in Jacob when he needed to get further himself, right? In life, hit her in a box and schlepped her across, you know tried to hide her. So the hiding of Dina is really a theme all throughout this. You know, Dina's person isn't respected. Dina's emotions aren't respected. Dina's face is unknown. Dina's voice is never heard. You know, so there's a lot to learn from this. Right, and so maybe maybe that's one of the lessons is, you know, because Dina's voice is not heard in the story, maybe what we're charged to do is to perpetually try to uncover and lift up uh, Dina's voice um, and have it actually speak to us and, and, and instruct us. Um, before we wrap up, I, I, um, I think you mentioned that there was a, a, a poem that you wanted to share that yeah, was connected with this. Thanks. Well, it's roundabout, roundabout. So it's, you know, midrashic meandering. Sure. But it was written for one of your teachers, actually, Rabini. Uh, who is a wonderful teacher, and this was written many, many years ago, long before she became a rabbi. Uh, and, um, and you'll see why I think it relates to Dina, because remember at the beginning I said she's named six times in the text as Dina. You know, if you didn't hear it once, this is her name. If you didn't hear it twice, this is her name. But her, she still remains, um, you know, she's, there's a void. And, and you know that's I love that too. That you know that was a refrain throughout the summer of the Black Lives Matter uh, protests was you know say their names right. Um, you know these were these are human beings um, who had lives and a story right. Um, they're they're not just you know props in somebody else's story. Okay, so for all those, so this is um, for Mimi. She's been trained to question, ask, inquire, to wrestle answers from husks of complacency, peeling away layers, raw, bloody, never allowing protective scarring. She lives in Jerusalem, of course, and riddle solving has a long history there, developed over centuries by bearded rabbis searching for meaning in a single word in its location or in the number of times it appears on the page. People of the book seeking answers from ancient scrolls, unraveling truths letter by letter from parchment, punctuated by the blank spaces where her questions originate, her own questions about what seems to be missing, what appears by innuendo alone, or about what is not yet written. This exegetic process she has learned so well 
calls attention to the emptiness she feels inside each time the sacred law is opened to the oft-time nameless and more frequently shapeless lives of women whose stories are recorded in only the faintest of ink. Mm. Thank you. Is that uh, in Behind the Blue Gate? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's uh, um, Carol's collection, uh, first collection of poetry, um, which is an extraordinary collection. Um, if you haven't had a chance to take a look at it, I, I really encourage you to do it and, and own a copy. Um, well, uh, Ima, it was such a joy and such an honor to uh, be able to discuss this with you and, and so appreciate your insight and, and your wisdom about this um, challenging story, but, but one that calls to us and um, reminds us um, to uh, lift up the uh, the names of, of those who are cast aside in their own stories and um, to uh, ensure that that their voices speak to us um, still today. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to learn with you. I miss that. So um, I guess I'll have to come to your congregation more frequently. Or we'll just do this more often. Okay, I like that too. Thank you. All right, thanks so much, Ima. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.